Hi, everybody. This is Jimmy DeYoung. Welcome to Prophecy Today. I'm in Wichita, Kansas. Had a great conference last evening, the Worldview Weekend Conference with Brandon House right here in Wichita, Great crowd, wonderful time of teaching of the Word of God. And we're going to get on a plane pretty quickly now, and we're going to go over to Des Moines, Iowa, at the Johnston Evangelical Free Church. We'll be there for the big Worldview Weekend Conference. And then we'll fly and go up to St. Paul, Minneapolis, where at the Doubletree Hotel we'll have another Worldview Weekend Rally with Brandon House. We've got a jam-packed program today, and we're going to get right to our broadcast partners. This first one is Ken Timmerman in the Washington, D.C. area. He looks at geopolitical activities for us, and he's got a busy schedule. He's running for United States Congress, so we're so thrilled that he could take a few moments to slip in here and talk to us about these geopolitical activities happening around the world. Ken, talk to me about the cover-up at the White House on the Libya attack. First of all, they denied that it was a true terroristic attack, and then they're trying to cover it up, it seems. What's going on? Well, it's pretty extraordinary, Jimmy. And uh, we heard uh, Vice President Biden last night uh, blatantly lie, frankly, about uh, when the White House understood or when it learned that uh, our embassy, our consulate in Benghazi, was attacked by terrorists. He claimed that the intelligence community had told the White House that it was all about, it was all a protest that had gone awry. In fact, the very next day, uh, it was crystal clear that there was never any protest at the consulate in Benghazi. Uh, and so I'm not quite sure where uh, Vice President Biden was getting his facts, but he was not getting them from the intelligence community, and he uh, lied to the American people last night. Well, when that did take place, was he not uh, really starting to help cover up the situation along with others that are doing this? And uh, should this be a factor in the upcoming elections? Well, I think, I think uh, look, Americans who go to the polls should understand that uh, this president has made us weaker around the world because of the policies that, of weakness that he has um, uh, been pursuing. Uh, we were attacked, and our ambassador was killed, and three other Americans were killed in Benghazi. Um, you mentioned a cover-up. Uh, the White House seemed absolutely convinced uh, that they could get away with telling the American people that our ambassador was murdered, our other embassies around the world were attacked uh, because of a uh, YouTube video that nobody had ever seen, when in fact the intelligence was very clear, and we now know this from a congressional hearing this week, the intelligence was very clear that um, uh, this was a plan by al-Qaeda to attack the United States on the anniversary of September 11th. I know that our present administration, Ken, has been talking about the taking out of Osama bin Laden, and that is absolutely correct. Uh, this administration took it out. I'm sure that the Bush administration had some uh, background work involved in that uh, exercise by the Navy SEALs as well. But then they've been talking about al-Qaeda on its heels. I don't know if that's correct. It seems to me when you look at there in Libya, when you look over in Iraq, al-Qaeda is becoming stronger instead of weaker. Well, al-Qaeda is becoming stronger, Jimmy, and it's becoming stronger because of the weak policies of this administration. We've essentially telegraphed to the Taliban and to al-Qaeda in Afghanistan exactly when we're going to be leaving. So they're able to gauge uh, their activities uh, on our... Uh, we, we've told them our strategy. You don't do that in the middle of a war. We've drawn down our troops in the middle of the fighting season. That also was a part of the vice presidential debate on Thursday night. 
we have um, uh, told uh, uh, al-Qaeda around the world that we will not uh, oppose them because America has no war with radical Islamic fundamentalism. We are at war with um, uh, radical extremism, whatever that might be. Uh, so you cannot prosecute a war if you do not recognize the ideology of your opponent. And that, I think, is the most fatal flaw of this administration. Looking at Syria, and we're changing the subject here a bit, but there's a civil war going on there. Bashar Assad, president of Syria, has killed somewhere in the area between twenty-five and 30,000 of his people as they are opposing his administration. And, and now there are many of the Syrians trying to get across the borders, either into Turkey or into Jordan. In fact, King Abdullah in Jordan very much concerned about that. The United States has sent military forces into Jordan. Is this just to assist in all of these refugees coming in from Syria, or do you think this is a move trying to get things set up to go after Bashar Assad? Well, my understanding is the uh, the very small deployment of U.S. advisors in Jordan is uh, aimed at eventually securing um, Syrian chemical weapons should they go astray. Uh, I think that is a correct move. I'm not sure that 100 advisors is enough to be able to do the job. But that's what we're being told uh, is at stake here. And I think it's an important thing. You know, Jimmy, on Thursday night, the, the same night of the vice presidential debate, I was with Ambassador John Bolton uh, in, in Maryland, where I'm running for Congress. And John came out and did an event for me. And, and we talked about Syria. And we talked about the stakes in Syria. And uh, both of us believe that the United States does not have a strategic interest in this civil war. We have uh, an interest in uh, uh, preventing Bashar al-Assad uh, from uh, becoming Iran's, or continuing to be Iran's puppet. We have an interest in preventing the Muslim Brotherhood from taking over Syria. But frankly, if they're both fighting each other at this point, uh, we do not want one of them to become the victor. But on the other side of that coin, uh, those uh, chemical weapons that are under control of Bashar Assad, they have to be watched very closely, don't they? Uh, they do have to be watched closely. The Israelis are worried about them. Uh, they, are, they have been weaponized. We know that they have uh, ballistic missile warheads filled with chemical weapons. Uh, and uh, on several occasions in the past couple of weeks, uh, our intelligence community here has uh, publicly stated that they have seen the Syrian government moving some of these weapons around, taking them out of their depots and moving them to more operational sites. This is a cause of concern, and uh, my understanding, again, is that that's exactly why we have deployed advisors into Jordan, military advisors, in the event that we have to do something uh, to secure those weapons. Let's change the focus once again. This time on the war-torn country of Iraq, looks like they're purchasing a number of military arms, munitions, weapons, etc., and it looks like now Russia has become Iraq's second largest supplier of arms. What does that mean? Well, uh, again, Paul Ryan in the debate on Thursday night said uh, uh, that Russian reset uh, it will be reset by a Romney administration. And here's a good reason why, Jimmy. Uh, the, we, we essentially, to our weakness, by allowing a vacuum uh, to develop in the Middle East, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, and elsewhere, we are inviting the Russians to come in and play a leading role. We should not be doing that. Uh, we should be there instead. Uh, we should not uh, create vacuums uh, for others to uh, supplant us. We should be playing a leadership role, which this administration has failed to do. 
You know, I understand that the leader, and I keep shifting to different geopolitical areas of this world because I want to get as much out of you as I possibly can in the short time that we have. But I focus on North Korea, and I understand that the leader of North Korea continually is pounding his chest. He may not be able to match up to what he threatens to do, but he has made a statement. We have a a missile that can actually hit America. Is that a viable possibility, and how is that going to change everything? Well, Jimmy, you know, they've tested uh, a a intercontinental uh, ballistic missile over the past couple of years. Some of those tests have been failures, uh, and, uh, you know, this administration has has tried to uh, make us believe that there is no imminent or immediate threat from a ICBM from uh, North Korea. But I would be concerned. We know that they're developing such a missile. We know that they want to have such a missile. Uh, the question is uh, whether they can put a large enough warhead on uh, the missiles that they have today to actually reach the United States. But let me just be careful about one thing. Is that North Korea, just as Iran, does not need to have an ICBM, an intercontinental ballistic missile, to hit the United States. They can put a much smaller missile on a commercial target ship, uh, a, commercial, um, a commercial ship, a cargo ship. And they can sail that ship into the uh, open sea sea lanes off of our coast and hit us from that ship. It's something that the Iranian regime has actually tested. They've tested uh, a sea-launched missile. Uh, So we know that it's it's technically feasible for them, uh, and they are sharing uh, technology with North Korea. In fact, most of those programs, both the nuclear program and the missile program in North Korea and Iran, are joint programs between the two countries. So I would be worried. Not certain yet whether North Korea has an actual ICBM that can hit us, but again, they don't need one. They can do it in a different way. Since you brought up Iran, let's talk about the supreme leader of the Supreme Council, Ayatollah Ali Khomeini. He said that the West, i.e. the European Union, United States, are really not putting these sanctions in place to link them to the nuclear program. Uh, what's he talking about? Is he, it just some of his radical rhetoric once again? Well, uh, again, uh, Ayatollah Khamenei is trying to make the Iranian people believe that it is not his fault, it is not his doing, that Iran is getting hit with sanctions from the United States and from the international community. Uh, I'm not sure how successful he is uh, in this effort. It's propaganda. Uh, it was funny. A couple, couple of um, months ago, they actually did a poll in Iran. Uh, the Iranian government did a poll for the, for the uh, national television uh, asking people if they were, would be willing to give up the nuclear weapons program if, in exchange, the Western sanctions would be lifted. And something like 70% of the people said, absolutely, let's give up the nuclear weapons program. And as soon as that first result came out, they pulled the poll and it buried any mention of it. Uh, So this is a propaganda ploy by uh, the supreme leader of Iran. Uh, He wants to convince the Iranian people that it's not his actions that have brought the economic disasters upon them, but uh, international sanctions. It's not true, and I don't think people are falling for it inside Iran. Ken Timmerman, he's in Washington, D.C. He gives us a look at geopolitical activities as one of our broadcast partners right here on Prophecy Today. Ken, thank you for taking just a few moments out of your very busy schedule. Appreciate it. We'll talk again real soon. It is a very busy campaign season, Jimmy. Thank you for having me on. God bless. Thank you very much, Ken. We'll take a break, and when we come back, we'll have a Middle East news update with David Dolan. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today.
In today's world, a biblical worldview and a proper understanding of biblical prophecy should be a priority. At a time when many false doctrines are entering the church at a frightening pace, we must be able to rightly divide God's Word in order to live a pure and productive life for Him. If you would like an in-depth understanding of biblical prophecy, let me challenge you to consider Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's School of Prophets. The School of Prophets is an online study for the layman or student pursuing a master's or doctorate degree. Dr. DeYoung's online study program will allow you to develop a timeline of biblical prophecies of the past, as well as future prophecies yet to be fulfilled. Your personal study of God's Word will only be enhanced by Dr. DeYoung's School of Prophets, and your life will be changed as you better understand, like Daniel, where you fit into God's calendar of events. If you're interested in developing a deeper understanding of God's prophetic Word, let me personally invite you to become involved in Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's School of Prophets. Call today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us at schoolofprophets.org. The book of Revelation is God's final word to man and the timeline of the last days revealed to the Christians. This symbolism-filled example of apocalyptic literature can be difficult to understand, especially when simply reading it from beginning to end. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest book, Revelation, A Chronology, takes a walk through the prophetic book of Revelation in the order that the events will take place, chronologically, sharing insights into its true meaning and doing so in an easy to understand and practical way. If you have difficulty understanding the book of Revelation, get your copy of Revelation, A Chronology, and let Dr. Jimmy DeYoung aid you in your understanding of this profound end times prophecy book that God has preserved in his scriptures for for Christians in the last days. To order your copy of Jimmy D. Young's Revelation, a chronology, call us toll-free at 877-674-3298 or visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung. As I said, we're here in Wichita, Kansas. We're going to take off and go up to Des Moines, Iowa. Last night, we had a great Worldview Weekend rally that is, of course, Brandon House and his organization. I was able to speak, teach the prophetic word of God. You know, if somebody's going to have to have a world view, they need to have a biblical worldview. Everybody does have one, and thus it needs to have a prophetic significance to it as well. We'll be tonight in Des Moines, Iowa at the Johnston Evangelical Free Church, and then on Sunday night we'll be at the Doubletree Hotel there in Minneapolis, St. Paul. You want to come and join us. If you need more information, go to worldviewweekend.com and you can get the times, the locations, directions to the locations as well. Right now, as promised, we're going to continue with our look at the world as things unfold, seemingly setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. And we do that with our broadcast partners. The man who covers the Middle East with a Middle East news update is David Dolan. And David, let's get right into the conversation. I need to talk to you, first of all, about a supreme guide to the Muslim Brotherhood located in Egypt who's calling for jihad a holy war to liberate the city of Jerusalem, and in particular, the Temple Mount. What are your thoughts? Well, it's uh, just another um, domino falling, as it were, in the, um, in the region. Uh, you know, this has been uh, a call, of course, that uh, uh, was first made uh, in, a, in a real serious way in the, in the 1940s, uh, and uh, the, the a war 
that the Arab world as a whole launched against nascent Israel in 1947-48 was, of course, a jihad, basically. And there were clerics at the time uh, in Egypt and in Jordan and in the other countries that that said that out loud. Um, Of course, Egypt, though, made peace with, uh, with Israel officially, and Jordan has as well. So for it to be coming from a Muslim Brotherhood, um, um, uh, from the Muslim Brotherhood group uh, uh, in Egypt is very, very significant. And, uh, you know, it's another indication that Egypt is moving uh, inch by inch away from the peace camp and towards uh, the camp of war. But again, it's a call that Iran makes. Iranian clerical leaders, Sheikh Nasrallah of, uh, of uh, Hezbollah, has made that call. And, of course, uh, that group sent a pilotless drone into northern Israel this week that the Israelis shot down, and they have now uh, openly admitted that it was a Hezbollah drone. So, you know, they're, they're in a sense, uh, putting flesh on their jihad call by, um, you know, stocking up in missiles and rockets and now uh, sending uh, planes into Israeli uh, space. Of course, Hamas last uh, weekend uh, bombed southern Israel, over 50 rockets uh, aimed at communities around the Gaza Strip. Uh, their leaders uh, call this a jihad with the ultimate aim of liberating, quote-unquote, Jerusalem. So um, it's, it's not a new thing, but it's just another, uh, another move towards this becoming a regional uh, offensive that involves pretty much all of the Muslim world, the Shiite side through Hezbollah and Iran and Syria, and the Sunni side through uh, Hamas, the Muslim Brotherhood, and, and uh, other groups, al-Qaeda, other groups as well. You mentioned that drone coming into Israeli airspace. Now, with the admission by Hezbollah that they're the ones who dispatched that drone into that airspace, that's somewhat of a new development, is it not, David? It is. It's, a, it's another upping of their, their war against uh, Israel. It's one thing to send rockets in. Uh, it's another thing to send men across the international border and kidnap soldiers, which, of course, they've done as well. But this is uh, uh, yet a third step, and uh, some Israeli analysts say we should expect uh, Hezbollah to uh, build up its naval uh, forces and to be harassing Israeli ships, etc., off of the coast. So it's not a good sign, and, uh, and the fact that Hezbollah admitted it, Jimmy, this just again reminds us, we talk all the time about will there be war against Iran, and you know when would that happen, and the presidential election here and all of that. But uh, I pointed out all along this thing could start, something could start from the other side, from Syria, Hezbollah, Hamas, uh, even maybe from the Sinai Peninsula, and we've had trouble there as well. So these are, it's not totally in Israel's hands to determine uh, whether it will have peace or not. Uh, It's, uh, after all, a jihad that's been declared against Israel, and uh, these Muslim groups are very serious about carrying that out. They definitely want that Temple Mount back under their exclusive control, no Jewish control at all over it, and they make that clear all the time. And talking about the mortars, there is news coming out of the Ministry of Defense in Israel that the Israeli Defense Force is facing a reality of a war along the peace border with Egypt. That's a new development as well. Well, it is, and again, uh, uh or three years ago, we wouldn't have uh, thought that possible. Uh, Mubarak had been in power for decades, and uh, the border with Egypt was the quietest by far, very stable, uh, just the occasional. We did have, even then, the occasional 
a terror attack launch, but it wasn't coming with any sort of support or backing from the Egyptian government. Now, of course, uh, uh, Mohamed Morsi, the president of Egypt, claims that he is trying to suppress um, these uh, al-Qaeda-linked uh, and Iranian-backed uh, terror groups and uh, Arab groups that are working in the Sinai uh, to attack Israel and Israeli interests. And there has been some evidence of him trying to suppress that. But at the same time, we get these these, these statements like you quoted and other things that are encouraging uh, warfare against Israel. So, um, And we have uh, Morsi saying, you know, that, uh, hey, part of the peace treaty is that uh, Israel would negotiate the final status of Jerusalem, and we want to see that now uh, fully implemented. Well, the treaty didn't say that Israel would abandon Jerusalem. It did say, though, it did promise negotiations, and those have gone on. But as we've seen, uh, Israel signs these uh, treaties with the PLO, with Yasser Arafat, with Jordan, with Egypt, but they can be reversed uh, by the other side, and uh, that seems to be what we're seeing unfolding in Egypt. I want to know, David, how this all factors into the reality that Prime Minister Netanyahu has called for early elections to take place in January. Now, I'm going to go in-depth in the conversation in just a moment with Winky Madad about how the government is formed, so we don't need all of that. But uh, tell me, uh, what about uh, Netanyahu? Is this the reason he's going to early elections, or are there other factors? There are several factors, but certainly um, he seems to be saying that uh, that by this time next year uh, there's going to probably be some sort of action against Iran. Uh, in his UN speech, he said that uh, you know by next spring they will cross the 70 percent threshold uh, red line, as he called it, uh, towards uh, the ability to develop nuclear weapons. He did not say as some think he did, that they would have a nuclear bomb next spring, but just that they would have all the material needed to assemble a bomb, and, and he's clearly stating they're not going to let it go beyond that. So it would seem like some sort of action is uh, on the horizon, and uh, I guess he wants a new mandate. He wants a fresh mandate. The polls do show that the Likud will uh, be the largest party in the Knesset, that they will win a majority of the of the seats with their allies, I should say, not them alone, but with their coalition allies, that they will again be able to form a government, and it will be a fresh new start. And I think he's thinking this will give me the uh, a fresh mandate from the people to possibly take military action and deal with, deal, of course, with the other problems. The economy in Israel is slowing down as it is uh, pretty much everywhere, and um, um, that. They want to keep exports up, et cetera, and he, he wants to revamp some of the of the rules and regulations there and some other things. He's tried to do several reforms, and he formed this broad coalition in May, and that fell apart within six weeks. So uh, I guess he feels he has no alternative now but to um, to go to early elections, and they're going to be next year anyway. They were they were mandated by next October, so he's just bringing them up a few months. Is he catching these guys off guard, the other politicos and the political parties in Israel, with this move? Not terribly. It was fairly expected that we would have um, elections before next October, that it wouldn't go a full year. Um, that's typical in Israel, uh, uh, in my experience over there, and, and Winky uh, can explain how the system works a bit better. But in my experience, uh, only once or twice in the 30 years, that I've lived in Israel have the elections been held exactly when they were scheduled to be because of course in a parliamentary system they can be held virtually at any time and that's what 
always happens. So the parties are more or less prepared. They were moving into a campaign uh, mode anyway, and uh, frankly, this just means it'll it'll take place sooner and be done sooner. And uh, the Israeli public doesn't have to endure two years of ads like we do in the United States uh, <laughs> before elections. They're, they're, they're usually snap elections, and there's half a year at most or a few months at most of campaigning, and then it's done with. David Dolan, he's the man who gives us a Middle East news update, has been a longtime journalist there in Jerusalem, and he's on top of every story coming out of the Middle East. David, thank you so much for being available. Appreciate it. Talk again soon. Okay, Jimmy. God bless. Thank you, David. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, I'll have a conversation with Winky Madad. We'll get in-depth. How do you put together an Israeli government? What's a coalition government? You need to keep your dial set where it is. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Have you ever wanted to know more about God's plan for the future? Have you ever tried to understand prophetic passages in God's Word, like, say, the book of Revelation, and been frustrated at not being able to figure it out? Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest CD series, Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, will help you gain the ability to understand where to start in your study of prophecy and allow you to read God's Word in a new and exciting way. Understanding God's prophetic Word will allow you to live a pure and productive life until Jesus returns for the church. Keys will help you gain the tools you need to understand the end-time events as foretold in God's Word. Dr. DeYoung lays out a systematic approach to Bible prophecy for those who want to know God's plan for the future. Tracks included are A Roadmap Through the End Times, The Jew in Jerusalem, Daniel and the Antichrist, Ezekiel and Messiah's Temple, and Revelation and Babylon. To order your copy of Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. Jimmy DeYoung here in Wichita, Kansas. We take off for Des Moines, Iowa and St. Paul, Minneapolis right after the broadcast is over. This half hour is jam-packed with information, so keep the dial set right where it is. Right now we bring to these microphones Winky Madad. Winky Madad lives in a place called Shiloh. This is a very remarkable place, has a great historic background, a wonderful biblical background. The Jewish people lived there with the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle for about 350 years after they came into the Promised Land uh, about 3,500 years ago. Winky was a former mayor of Shiloh. He works now with the Menachem Begin Library. He has been a politico. He's been involved in the media. He's somewhat of a journalist. And we bring him to these microphones to discuss issues that we really want to get insight into. And Winky, this last week, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu has called for early elections. I think right after the first of the year, about nine months before the regular election period would go into play. Why do you think this happened? And then we'll talk about some of the ramifications and the reasons behind it. But why do you think this uh, happened and he called for early elections right now? Well, Jimmy, um, the official reason, which is a very good reason, given the uh, setup of Israeli politics, which is a parliamentary coalition system, is that he felt that with elections coming up in any case, the parties involved would be more attuned to being elected and basing their uh, budgetary demands 
or government policies more on, shall we say, issues close to their hearts and needs rather than what the country needs. Netanyahu knows that one of the main issues is an economic, or shall we say, a social economic platform, and he wanted to take advantage of that and jump the gun. Well, is there any connection to the Iranian situation? We know that he has been really out front in trying to tell the world in particular, but of course convince uh, the Israelis that there was a need to deal with the Iranian uh, nuclear program developing a nuclear weapon of mass destruction. Did this have any play in his reason for calling for early elections any, as well? Uh, not that I know of uh, in any obvious sense. You, you must realize and uh, as a long-time observer of Israeli politics, uh, perhaps you'll even agree with me, that when a very firm uh, security or military threat is facing Israel's politic- uh, po- populace, they will go, shall we say, to the right, or there will be a very strong uh, pro-responsive attitude. And it doesn't make a difference what government is in power. So I think we think that Netanyahu thinks that on major issues concerning our security, he has everything locked up. What could foul him up or trip him up uh, could be some of the issues that we saw a year ago with mass protests and marches about the prices of food, about subsidies, about housing. And I think he wants to get a handle on this earlier rather than later. Well, and then let me ask one more factor that may have entered into his decision-making. The United States presidential elections, did that, in your opinion, do you think this had anything to do with this call for early elections? I would think so. Any candidate of the two right now that are running, they would have an immediate effect on any Iranian decision that has to be made. And I think that no matter what happens, if Mr. Obama is reelected, I think Netanyahu would want to be a, shall we say, um, a, a re-improved mandate from Israel's population to stand up to a policy that up until now Israel has viewed as very weak in terms of both an American versus Iran and America assisting Israel. That's a two-level type of approach there, and Mr. Obama does not get all the uh, points he could uh, on this issue, and if it's with Mr. Romney, well, he wants to make sure that Romney knows that Israel is behind him, I'm talking about Mr. Romney, if he has to uh, give the order that the Israeli, excuse me, the American military has to aid Israel in an attack. Winky, talk with us just a moment. People here in America have really no understanding of how the election process takes place there in Israel. There are 120 members in the Knesset. They do not run as individuals to become members of the Knesset. I need you to explain that to those eavesdropping on the conversation. And then how do they elect a prime minister? How does this all come about? Explain it. Now, give it to us in simple terms, but explain how it operates. All right. We'll do a course in Israeli politics 101 very quickly. Israel is a parliamentary democracy. As such, there is no direct election either of uh, the prime minister, and I'll get back to that in a second, and unlike other parliamentary democracies, such as, for example, uh, France and or Great Britain, 
we do not have any constituencies. The country as a whole is one voting district. Uh, no uh, representatives, no senators, no anything in between. And therefore, for any party to be able to propose a candidate for the position of prime minister after elections, it either has to have 61 seats in, as you said, the 120-seat Knesset, or be able to gather together a coalition of parties, two or more, that reach that number of 61. Since Israel, 60 years on, is a very ideologically political place, we can have anywhere between 15 to 30 parties running in those elections. The elections are proportionally representative. So if a party gets 10% of the votes, it will get 12 seats in the Knesset, and so forth and so on. All this, of course, complicates the ability of a governing coalition to get together, and means that the prime minister has no popular backing in any direct sense, but must cater to his coalition partners. Now, the coalition partners, of course, come together uh, from all the parties that are, for example, on the ballot in the election time that's coming up probably in January or February. How many different political parties are there in Israel? Uh, as I said, it could uh, go from 15 to 30. Many people have very large egos in Israel, especially politicians or those who think they are politicians, and they think they can get uh, anywhere. Uh, now the cutoff is 3%. They think, oh, sure, I can get 3% of the vote. You have various religious parties, because the religious parties won't get together on one platform. Uh, you have uh, right-of-center parties, left-of-center parties, Far left of center and far right of center. What about, uh, I hear, uh, I don't know if this is true or not, but I understand that a former prime minister, Ehud Olmart, who was uh, indicted for corruption when he was serving as prime minister, is considering uh, making a, another run in the uh, political arena, possibly running against Prime Minister Netanyahu. Is that correct? The, that he is considering it and that there have been appeals to him to do so, that is absolutely correct. At the present moment, though, it's kind of difficult to tell because if uh, the uh, state prosecutor's office decides to appeal a recent judgment that went in his favor, he might be disallowed from running because of a court case. So it's going to come down to the wire on that one. Now, let's talk about how then do they elect a prime minister. What's the situation if uh, you connect with uh, enough of the parties out there to get a coalition government? Is that how it comes about, or explain that to us? Well, basically, yes. I mean, it usually is the, can the, the number one candidate on the list with the largest number of members of Knesset who gets the call to see if he can form a coalition. In most cases in Israel, up until the last elections, there has been a considerable distance between the number of seats of the winning party, uh, and when I say winning, I don't mean he won all the parts, but the largest number of seats, and number two. The last elections was very close, uh, so that it's quite possible that a the, the leading uh, or the leader of a second-place party 
could perhaps better get a coalition together. It can theoretically happen. It usually doesn't, but the rules are whoever can get you know, 61 members of Knesset voting for him, he becomes prime minister. If he doesn't, if he, if he, he runs out of time, after I think it's six weeks, he gets a chance, and then another two weeks, if the end of that two-month period he hasn't returned to the Knesset, someone else is going to get the job. Winky, what, in your opinion, and uh, you have uh, much political savvy, in your opinion, will Netanyahu be reelected? In a word, yes. And do you think he's going to have to give a lot to get reelected? In other words, doiling out to these smaller parties, these political parties, uh, favors like uh, a minister's job or a deputy minister's job or something like that. Will he have to work hard at that, or will he have a pretty good, strong coalition? No, he's going to have to work very hard. Unfortunately, the system is slowly but surely really breaking down on this element here. We've uh, Many of the population feel the government is top-heavy, awkward, um, <clears throat> cumbersome, not responsive, too bureaucratic. And But uh, Mr. Netanyahu still has what well, you can call it either charm or magic in terms of uh, many people, uh, even those very ideological, will say, well, he's the only one who's electable. I won't throw away my vote uh, to a party that's smaller and appeals to me more. And then there are others who say that's the only way to make Mr. Netanyahu uh, stick to a right-wing nationalist program if I strengthen his uh, future coalition partners. So you have those type of approaches. Of course, it works very well for the left wing as well. What do you do? Do you, do you, do you go for the guy who you think the middle is going to vote for? Uh, as we know in Israel, it's like uh, uh, 40% left, 40% right, and 20% somewhere in the middle who can't make up their minds. Yeah, that's, that sounds uh, similar to what we have in the United States. Well, I, I'm sure in my analysis of this election coming up in Israel is a very key election at this time in history because of the election of a president in the United States, because of the economic problems you're talking about that Israeli government has to deal with, but most importantly, the threat that Iran is to the Jewish state. Would you not agree with that analysis? Definitely, and one of the major points that Netanyahu will bring to the table for the judgment of the voters is his... uh, which I think has been, he has been successful uh, to the extent that he has been in presenting, I am the person who can make the decision on Iran. Uh, no one else has the background, the capability, the connections with the United States, or the ability to explain why we're doing this. Uh, and uh, other people have been seen as very weak. Uh, don't forget, uh, Olmert has the to a certain extent, the stain of the Second Lebanon War that went very, very poorly in terms of management and, and, and directorship. And his uh, contact with the, uh, with the Palestinian Authority is also very suspect. So uh, on these two major issues, I don't think anybody else can come close to Netanyahu. Winky, thank you so much, my good friend. We'll talk as this election campaign continues on up to the time of election. Thank you, Jimmy. Good night to you and our listeners. 
Winky Madad with insight into the Israeli elections. Early elections now called by Prime Minister Netanyahu. They'll take place in January. And we'll continue to cover this story in particular with Winky Madad because he has great insight into what's happening politically in the state of Israel. Well, right now, folks, we have a great opportunity. Don't you dare touch that dial. We're going to Israel, into Jerusalem someplace, and we're going to be talking with Jim Jr. Jim and his wife, Jill, are leading the tour. Judy and I leave on Monday afternoon. We'll fly in, be there Tuesday evening, join with them in Israel as these people walk in the location where Jesus ministered for the three and a half years after he started his ministry before he went into the heavenlies after the crucifixion and the resurrection of our wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ. Jim, where are you right now, buddy? Hey, Dad, we're at the Western Wall, the Kotel, right here in the city of Jerusalem, in the old city. You know, that is the center of the earth. What a location for me to be able to catch you on the run with our tour group. Ezekiel 5.5 5 says Jerusalem's the center of the earth, and of course, the Temple Mount, that's the apple of God's eye, where Jesus will rule and reign forever. Are the people having an exciting time going down to the Kotel? Oh, they sure are. It's always an exciting time when you come to the Kotel, to the Western Wall area. As a matter of fact, we started out the tour in the Shepherd's Fields. We've been to Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Museum. We've been to the Shrine of the Book, where they housed the scrolls that were found in the Dead Sea area. And also we've been looking at Jerusalem from the south. You remember that place, Dad, the promenade, where you get that beautiful view of Jerusalem. You know, that's a great opportunity for the people. They're in Jerusalem for a couple of days, and then they head to the Galilee. But, Jim, the Yad Vashem, which is the Holocaust Museum, why do you go there first? We've talked about this before, but that is key. All foreign visitors to Israel go to the Yad Vashem Holocaust Museum first, don't they? They sure do. It's out of respect that people will go to visit Yad Vashem. That's the Holocaust Memorial Museum commemorating and remembering the names of the six million that died uh, at the hands of Adolf Hitler in Germany and Poland at the different prison camps. So we take our folks there. It's part of uh, the first thing that we do. We look at how God prepared a people for the land to come back to the land of Israel. That is a very moving experience. I can remember it many times. You go to the children's portion of the Holocaust Museum, 1.5 million children died in the Holocaust. You can't walk through there with a dry eye. Tears will come streaming down. Well, the Shrine of the Book is a key place because uh, that's the biblical perspective in helping us understand why the Jews are back in the land, aren't they? It sure is, Dad. As a matter of fact, those scrolls that were found in 1948, the same scrolls that even a Hebrew young uh, Israeli today can go there and read the Hebrew that the scrolls were written in, the same scrolls that were written over 3,000 years ago. Now you leave from Jerusalem, go to the Galilee. That's going to be a wonderful time, isn't it? Sure is. We leave. We'll go to Caesarea. We'll spend time there at the theater in Caesarea down by the sea. They actually call it Caesarea Maritime. And we'll go there. Then from there we head to Mount Carmel where we will retell the story of Elijah as he defeated the prophets of Baal. And that the afternoon, we go to a place, a unique place that actually our young people with Israel Project, our young mission group that comes over and does work here in the land, we help build 
this location, and it's called Nazareth Village. It's a place where they have actors that come out, and they've recreated what Nazareth would have looked like at the time of Jesus. Well, that's going to be a, a wonderful experience. I remember doing some television there, and they had the reenactment of Joseph, the, uh, the earthly father of Jesus Christ. And there was a little boy, a small young man there, acting like and replicating what his father was doing as a carpenter, and that was a moving experience. Then on to the Galilee, into uh, Tiberias. They'll take the boat ride. They'll have a great time there on the Sea of Galilee, going up into Golden Heights and everything else. Jim, I'll be there. Time for our third temple seminar when we go on the Temple Mount on Wednesday. So can you keep it in the road till Mom and I get there? <laughs> we'll try, Dad. Well, Jim, it's great to hear from you, and tell all the people hello for us, and uh, thank you for being available. We'll see you when we get to Jerusalem. Looking forward to it, Dad. Wow, some great information from Jim Jr. about the tour and all the people having a great time walking in the steps where Jesus would have walked. Actually, they're running in the steps, as we talked about. Well, we're going to switch from the Middle East now to Europe, and in reality, Dr. Rob Congdon, our broadcast partner covering the European Union, is today literally in Europe. We'll find out where he is in just a moment. But I want to uh, tell you, Rob, it's exciting the fact that you can be over there, that we have people in the Middle East, that we have people in Washington, D.C. We are actually covering the world with our broadcast partners. Tell us exactly where you are right now. Okay, I'm in Oxford, England. Uh, that's where the early universities of history began, and a very historic town. As you drive through it, you see all the different uh, colleges and quite a famous area. It's about, uh, oh, about two hours uh, northwest of London, and it's out in a beautiful area of England. And you're there to do some uh, speaking to Christian community, are you not? That's right. I'll be speaking for the next eight days every day, and some days I'll speaking, be speaking twice during those days to pastors, missionaries, and uh, church leaders uh, during the day, and then the churches in the evening. What's your main message going to be to these people? Uh, main message has been about the thrones of God's glory, of both in the past and where they're going in the future, and, of course, a, a major topic. We're having several question-and-answer times about the new Calvinist movement and how it's affecting the Reform Covenant teaching that is so contrary to dispensationalism, which, of course, we believe dispensationalism is correct and biblical. So we're going to be answering questions, helping them to understand and, and combat what covenant theology, how often it destroys churches, as it's been doing in this country. Absolutely, that is the case there. And of course, what happens in Europe usually jumps the Atlantic Ocean and comes quickly over to the United States. When you get back home, we'll have to talk about that here in America as well. Well, Rob, you got off the airplane, and the number one story had to be that the European Union has won the Nobel Peace Prize. Talk to me about that. That's something interesting. Well, it is interesting. It's a country that has won it rather than an individual, and actually it's an empire that has won it rather than even one country. Twenty-seven countries are represented in the European Union. They have been given the Nobel Peace Prize for maintaining and keeping peace through Europe for these 50 to 60 years. And so it's, it's quite unusual, especially for Norway, 
uh, to award it because Norway has uh, rejected the European Union membership, but they have awarded it to them. And, of course, the speculation is who will receive the award. It's been suggested 27 children representing each of the countries will come and get the award in Norway for the Peace Prize. I cannot uh, continue any farther in this conversation without saying that does have tense of a prophetic scenario because out of the European Union, I do believe, and I do think you as well believe the same thing, will come the revived Roman Empire, and they'll be responsible, the leader of that revived Roman Empire, for peace in the Middle East. This does set the stage for that, does it not? Oh, it does. It, it surely links the European Union to the whole peace concept in the world. And uh, as you said, I too agree. I think the European Union is today's, if you will, uh, embryo of that Roman Empire. So it, it is, I think this is a very significant story. Uh, we know that the awards are often debated and considered political, etc. But again, as you said, it links the idea of world peace with this empire, the European Union. Let me back up to my conversations earlier with guys in the Middle East, Dave Dolan, Winky Madad, and our son Jim Jr. Uh, I want to ask you, the European Union, I think probably along this same vein of trying to keep peace, has warned the Palestinian Authority, uh, the government for the Palestinian people, to be very careful and to understand the cost of a United Nations bid to become a state among the nations of the world. There, the European Union is trying to smooth things out before problems begin. That's right. They're afraid that if the if the Palestinian uh, Authority is given a, uh, it would be actually of an observer status in the European in the United Nations that that would actually halt the peace process because part of that would be urging it to go back to the 1967 borders, and, and they, Israel can't accept that. The European Union understands that and believes it would just bring the diplomatic efforts to bring peace in the Middle East to a halt. So, yes, they're warning very strongly to not pursue this in the autumn session at the United Nations. And uh, I, I suspect this is this is uh, worth listening to by the Palestinians. I think that will make them be more hesitant to pursue that course. Boy, with this late breaking news, European Union winning the Nobel Peace Prize and their efforts to try to smooth things over in the Middle East and possibly keep that peace process going. Wow, it's so prophetic in its sound. Well, there is additional information coming out of uh, Greece, for example, about this uh, euro crisis that's been in effect for a number of months and even years there in the European Union. Angela Merkel, Chancellor of Germany, goes into Athens for a visit. And uh, just talk to me about the ramifications of what happened there. Well, there were many demonstrations. Of course, there have been ongoing demonstrations, but it appears that uh, her visit may be uh, resulting in somewhat of a delay of, of some of the penalties for Greece, uh, and they won't have to pay it back so quickly. So uh, maybe it will help from the people's viewpoint. It will help them. Uh, the European Union just continues to kind of put off the uh, coming head-to-head -head with this crisis and keep offering extension of time. Uh, well, that will make Greece happy, but it may not solve the financial problems that they have along with Spain and Italy and some of the other countries. 
Rob, I wanted to ask you another question. I don't think you're going to be ready for it yet since you just got off the airplane there in London and went up to Oxford, England. But I want to know the heartbeat of the Europeans about this Euro crisis and uh, can the Eurozone actually be saved. But why don't we save that to next week because you'll have a greater opportunity to interact with people, get their heartbeat, and we'll discuss that the next time. Rob, we want to be praying for you. Have some great meetings there. Are you just going to be in England in that area? Well, I'll be in Oxford, and then I'll be traveling up almost to the border of Scotland in a town called Sunderland or Newcastle on Tyne, which is quite a historic area. We'll be speaking up there in a uh, very important church that once was Sidlow Baxter's church, if people know who he was. He was pastor there at one time. So it'll be a historic church, but again, top meetings. We're going to have a lot of pastors coming to the question and answer time. Boy, that sounds like a great itinerary and a great opportunity for you to preach and teach dispensationalism and Bible prophecy. So we'll be praying for you. And we'll talk again next week when you're still there in Great Britain. We'll get more information from you. Thank you, Rob. Appreciate it. Great to be with you. Lord bless. It's always a joy to be able to talk with Rob Congdon, and especially when he is in Europe, in Oxford. That's the city of universities. Well, we're going to get more information from him also in Europe on next week's broadcast. We're going to take a break when we come back. A very interesting conversation with Mike Gendron about the 50th anniversary of Vatican II. What does it mean to you and me as born-again believers in Jesus Christ? That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung behind these microphones in Wichita, Kansas. Had a wonderful rally at the Worldview Weekend Conference with Brandon House last night. Take off after the broadcast, as we've been telling you, to fly up to Des Moines and then on to St. Paul, Minneapolis. Come join us for one of these conferences, the Worldview Weekend Conference with Brandon House. Now I want to have a conversation with Mike Gendron. Mike has an organization entitled Proclaiming the Gospel. Their website is proclaimingthegospel.org. And Mike has spent many years in studying the Church of Rome. And I want to talk to him about an article that I read earlier this week, which said Vatican II was celebrating its 50th anniversary. Now, I've heard about Vatican II. I don't know exactly what it is. And so I thought maybe many of the listeners to Prophecy Today would have the same problem. So now you can eavesdrop on my conversation with Mike, and we'll find out something about it. Mike, thank you so very much for being available to us today. Anytime, Jimmy. It's always good to be with you. Thank you, sir. What is Vatican II, and how does that have a connection to the Catholic Church, the Church in Rome? Well, Vatican Council II was convened 50 years ago on October 11th, 1962, and it was started by Pope John XXIII. He's the one who called the first session, and then it ended with Pope Paul VI. He presided over the last sessions, and what most people don't realize is that Vatican Council II did nothing to the dogmatic structure of the Roman Catholic religion. In fact, there were no changes to 
the dogmas of the Catholic religion. The only thing they did was they added a new doctrine, which asserts that Mary is the mother of the Church. So what happened at Vatican Council II was primarily cosmetic changes. Some of the changes that they came up with is they no longer said the Mass in Latin. They now said it in the common vernacular of the people. And the priest used to have his back to the audience. Now he turns around and he's facing the audience as he does the sacrifice of the Mass. Women were allowed to become readers and lectors, Eucharistic ministers, as well as young girls were allowed to be altar servers. And another good change in the Catholic religion as a result of Vatican II was that Catholics were now allowed to attend Protestant services. Many people don't realize that. Prior to Vatican II, Catholics were never allowed to attend any Protestant services, so they changed that. And they also allowed them to start reading a Protestant Bible. But, Jimmy, probably the biggest change or the biggest um, development that came out of Vatican Council II was the decree on ecumenism, how the Church relates to the rest of the world's religions. And it was during that time that the Catholic Church radically changed its position on the teaching about the Jews, and they opened up dialogue with the Jewish community. Catholics could no longer consider the Jews as an enemy, but in fact now they were brothers and sisters under the same God. So you can imagine, Jimmy, this was a monumental shift in the position of the Church from its history of anti-Semitism. It was during this council as well that the Roman Catholic religion embraced the Muslim religion as God's as part of God's plan of salvation. We find that in um, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 841. And so this decree on ecumenism was an attempt to unite all religions under the power and the authority of the Pope. And so since then, the Catholic Church has been building bridges into all Christian denominations as well as seeking unification with the Orthodox Church and even the religions of the world. And so we're seeing the rebuilding of the Tower of Babel. We're seeing the Apostate Church of Rome building bridges to really build the Church of the Antichrist, which we know will one day worship a man who calls himself the Christ, but he will be a false Christ, he will be the Antichrist. Vatican Council II also made the claim that the Roman Catholic Church is the only true Church. Maybe the um, the biggest development of uh, Vatican Council II on the forgiveness of sins was on indulgences. If we know our Church history, we know that that was one of the sparks of the Reformation when Martin Luther nailed his 95 Thesis on the castle on the church door of the Castle Church, and those 95 Theses stood opposed to the selling of God's grace, the selling of God's forgiveness. So Vatican Council II issued a dogma, an infallible dogma, that teaches and commands that the uses of indulgences should be kept in the Church, and then it goes on to condemn with anathema those who say that indulgences are useless or that the Church does not have the power to grant them. So all Protestants, all Evangelicals that deny 
the Catholic Church has the power to grant the forgiveness of sin through the sale of indulgences. We are condemned by this Church that is trying to bring unity with all Protestants and Evangelicals. Wow, you know, that is a lot to bite off at. Think about, Mike. Let me just get in here now and uh, address some of the issues that you brought to our attention. As of Vatican Chapter 2 back in the 60s, I understand now there's going to be dialogue between the Protestant community in the church area and then the Catholics. What do they have to talk about when they meet together? Well, I must let you know and your listeners no, the Roman Catholic Church will not bend on any of its dogmas. In fact, they are in cement. Their dogmas can never change. And so the dialogue that's going on, Jimmy, is actually an attempt by Rome to have Protestants compromise their position. We must recognize the Roman Catholic Church's purpose is not union with other faiths, but actually absorption of other faiths. And so they'll not bend on their dogmatic doctrine. Unity with Rome is strictly a one-way street. We must come to them as the only true church. Bottom line is, an infallible church simply cannot repent. So other religions must compromise their positions in order to have unity with Rome. And so really this new strategy of pseudo-ecumenism makes Rome better suited to eliminate any opposition to itself as the one true church. Mike, let me ask you, are there Protestant denominations that are actually in dialogue with the Catholic Church right now? Have they been involved already in applying with this Vatican II uh, dogma that was set up? Oh, very definitely. Not only is there dialogue with the Orthodox Patriarch, but there's also dialogue with many evangelical denominations. You may be familiar with the Evangelicals and Catholics Together Accord that was signed in 1994 by Chuck Colson and many other leading evangelicals. This was a dialogue with Roman Catholicism, and since 1994 there's been subsequent accords all pushing for the unity between Roman Catholics and Evangelicals. Now, some of these dialogues are recognizing that there are differences, but then they dismiss the differences as not that important. And many of the differences have everything to do with our salvation. In fact, one of the issues of contention was whether or not salvation can be through the sinless mediatrics of the Virgin Mary, Another, of course, would be the issue of justification. We, as evangelicals, believe the Bible, that we are justified by faith alone, but Rome says if you believe that, you are condemned with anathema because they believe justification is by faith plus works. And so these differences are not insignificant. They have everything to do with the eternal destiny of those who embrace them. Then when you talk about the true church, uh, which is the one who believes in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and then the fact that we need to admit we're sinners, believe that Christ did die for us to take away our sin and call upon him to save us, that would be a bit different than what we understand Catholicism to be. Is that correct? In other words, Catholicism could not be true Christianity. Well, it's not, Roman Catholicism in its purest form is an apostate religion, 
And apostasy doesn't happen overnight. It's a gradual turning from the Word of God to the traditions of men. And this apostasy of the Roman Catholic Church continued over 1,200 years. But at the Council of Trent in the 16th century, Rome officially departed from the Gospel of Jesus Christ by pronouncing over 100 anathemas or condemnations against those who believe the Gospel of Christ, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, according to the Scriptures alone, all for the glory of God alone. Now, Jimmy, you brought up a good point, and this is part of the problem. From afar, Roman Catholicism looks like a valid expression of Christianity because it upholds many of the fundamentals of the Christian faith, such that there is a triune God of which Jesus Christ is the second person. He was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died for the sins of the world, was raised three days later, and will come back to judge the living and the dead. We evangelicals believe those basic fundamentals, as does the Roman Catholic religion. But Roman Catholicism uses those fundamentals as a veil of truth that hides a false and fatal gospel. And so the gospel of Rome is antithetical to the biblical gospel of grace. Rome says you must jump through many hoops in order to be saved. You must be baptized and receive the sacraments and go to the sacrifice of the Mass every week. You must do good works. You must keep the law. You must believe indulgences can remit punishment for sin. And you must believe that purgatory is a purging fire that will prepare you for heaven. These are all requirements for Roman Catholic salvation. Quite different from the response the Philippian jailer got from Paul when he asked, What must I do to be saved? Paul said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Wow, that is absolutely a, a contradiction in terms between the two. Well, early on, you mentioned in this conversation a connection with the false church as revealed in the book of Revelation, chapter 17. So, as you see it, and we've only got about a minute left, as you see it, you would say to us that what we see happening in our world today is simply setting the stage for Revelation chapter 17 to be fulfilled, the false church on our world scene. Yes, I would say that, and I do it with great evidence that is actually can be proven and verified and confirmed by anybody that wants to take the trouble. Rome right now presents a false Christ, and ultimately... What we read in Revelation 13 and 17, there will be a false prophet that points the world to a false Christ, and he will demand worship of that false Christ under the penalty of death. And so the stage is being set for a false religion to point the world to a false Christ. As God's Word says will happen. That's Revelation chapter 17. The false church goes into operation the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. Mike, I can tell by this conversation we need to have additional conversations in the future. Hope you'll make yourself available. But I want to thank you so very much for helping us to think about Vatican II in its 50th anniversary year as we look at what is happening in our world. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. Talk to you again soon. Thank you, Jimmy. My pleasure. Thank you, Mike. That was very, very important information. You may well want to go to our website 
And prophecytoday.com is the location of the website, PTRN. You can re-listen to that interview. It was power-packed and a lot of detailed information you need to know. And let me give you our poll question while you're there at the website. Check out this poll question. Is the Catholic Church today a part of true Christianity or a perversion of true Christianity? That is our poll question at prophecytoday.com. Be sure to answer the poll question. We're going to take a break right now, and when we come back, I'll take a look at the book focused on my conversation with Mike Gendron. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. In today's world, a biblical worldview and a proper understanding of biblical prophecy should be a priority. At a time when many false doctrines are entering the church at a frightening pace, we must be able to rightly divide God's Word in order to live a pure and productive life for Him. If you would like an in-depth understanding of biblical prophecy, let me challenge you to consider Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's School of Prophets. The School of Prophets is an online study for the layman or student pursuing a master's or doctorate degree. Dr. DeYoung's online study program will allow you to develop a timeline of biblical prophecies of the past, as well as future prophecies yet to be fulfilled. Your personal study of God's Word will only be enhanced by Dr. DeYoung's School of Prophets, and your life will be changed as you better understand, like Daniel, where you fit into God's calendar of events. If you're interested in developing a deeper understanding of God's prophetic Word, let me personally invite you to become involved in Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's School of Prophets. Call today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us at schoolofprophets.org. The book of Revelation is God's final word to man and the timeline of the last days revealed to the Christians. This symbolism-filled example of apocalyptic literature can be difficult to understand, especially when simply reading it from beginning to end. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest book, Revelation, A Chronology, takes a walk through the prophetic book of Revelation in the order that the events will take place, chronologically, sharing insights into its true meaning and doing so in an easy-to-understand and practical way. If you have difficulty understanding the book of Revelation, get your copy of Revelation, A Chronology, and let Dr. Jimmy DeYoung aid you in your understanding of this profound end-times prophecy book that God has preserved in His scriptures for for Christians in the last days. To order your copy of Jimmy D. Young's Revelation, a chronology, call us toll-free at 877-674-3298 or visit our website at prophecytoday.com. It's time right now here on Prophecy Today for us to take a look at the book. On Prophecy Today weekend, we had conversations with broadcast partners in Washington, D.C., the Middle East, Europe, and in Jerusalem, these men gave us insight into the current events that are setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. For example, from Washington, D.C., Ken Timmerman talked about the White House cover-up of the Libya attack, and Ken also told us that U.S. troops, military, on the ground with their boots in what is a very hot spot right now, the border of Jordan and Syria. We discussed the Syrian situation as well with Ken. 
David Dolan gave us a Middle East news update. We talked about that Hezbollah drone. Hezbollah has admitted they're the one that sent the drone into Israeli airspace. And, of course, the Israeli Defense Force sent their jets up and took that drone out. But we also talked about a Muslim cleric in Egypt a part of the Muslim Brotherhood, calling for jihad to be able to liberate Jerusalem. And then we just touch base about the elections, early elections, Prime Minister Netanyahu calling early elections in January. But then when I talked with Winky Madad, he explained to us how the election process works in Israel. In fact, I'd have to say that Winky gave us Israel elections number 101, a course that we all need to understand. Dr. Rob Congdon was talking to us from Oxford, England. He's in Europe right now. And our big story was the lead story. The European Union has received the Nobel Peace Prize. When I called Jim Jr., I found him at the Western Wall there at the Temple Mount. Jim and his wife, Jill, are leading our tour in Israel. Judy and I leave on Monday afternoon. We'll be there Tuesday, and we'll join the tour going throughout all of Israel and learning some very, very important biblical historic background of the time of Jesus and all of history. You look at Israel past, you, when you're in the land, look at Israel present, and then I'll be giving my third temple seminar on Wednesday when we arrive, and that's looking at Israel future. Mike Gendron talked to us about the fifth anniversary of Vatican II. This was a very important conversation. I think that you might want to re-listen to it. He had to go somewhat into detail, which would probably cause us all to want to listen again. If you missed any of these interviews on the weekend program and you'd like to re-listen to them, go to our website, prophecytoday.com and PTRN, Prophecy Today Radio Network. All the interviews with our broadcast partners will be posted there. By the way, you might want to tell a friend that they can go and listen to these interviews as well. These were very, very special reports, and I want to discuss my talk with Mike Gendron in just a moment here on uh, the process of thinking about Vatican II. You know, as you re-listen to our conversation, you can make up your own mind about whether Catholicism is true Christianity or simply a perversion. What I want to do is spend some time looking at the book. That's the name of this segment. Let's take a look at the book, and I'll talk to you what the Bible has to say about all of false religion, because that's what Mike looked at and focused on right at the end of our conversation. You know, all false religions started about 4,500 years ago in a place called Babel. Remember, in Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, God told Noah and his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Jepheth, and their four wives to be fruitful, multiply, and repeople the earth. Well, his great-grandson, Nimrod, did not do that. Chapter 10, verse 10 says the beginning of Nimrod's kingdom. He wanted to set up his own earthly kingdom in contradiction to what the Lord told him to do. So he went to a place called Babel on the shores of the Euphrates River. There he built a tower, Genesis 11, verse 4, that would reach into heaven. Now, I tell you the truth, I don't think Nimrod really wanted to go to the true heaven. But he wanted to set up a religion that would cause everybody to fall in line with his dictates at that time in history. He said he wanted to make another name, not a name of popularity, but a name other than 
Yahweh, the God of the Bible. He wanted a, a name that would be a Babylonian God like Marduk. He established with his wife, Simuramus, and their son, Tammuz, the mother-son cult. Both of these people, the personalities and uh, the actual people themselves, uh, Simiramus, who was the wife of uh, Nimrod and the uh, mother of uh, Tammuz, the mother-son cult, are mentioned in the Bible. Jeremiah chapter 7 and verse 44 speaks about the queen of heaven. That would be Semiramis. And Ezekiel chapter 8 talks about Tammuz when a convent of virgins would weep over Tammuz. This mother-son cult was uh, in process and in operation in Babylon during the time of the Babylonian captivity and the Babylonian empire. When it fell in 539 B.C., uh, this mother-son cult moved to Pergamos, one of the churches in the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3. It was one of the seven churches there in Asia Minor. This is where they started to deify the emperors, the emperors of the, revived, of the Roman Empire at that time, and they became the leaders of the church. Their title was Pontifus Maximus. Ultimately, they would be called Pope. Around 300, Constantine, who was one of those emperors, called everybody in the world Christian. All they needed to do is to be baptized, no doctrine of salvation, simply be baptized and they would be Christian. Well, uh, Vatican I was uh, actually the Council of Trent, and they did a lot of things there, but Vatican II has come together, and it's basically bringing together the Protestants and the Catholics in discussion to try to merge the two and form an ecumenical church. Well, the future is set when you see that all happening. Revelation chapter 17. The whore in Revelation 17 is the false church. Of course, the true church would be the bride of Christ. The beast is the Antichrist when you read through chapter 17. And this false church will be headquartered in a seven-hilled city. That's verse 9. That's the city of Rome. Verse 5 says Babylon was the false religion that was set up 4,500 years ago. It's progressed down through the ages. It will be a part of the revived Roman empire. That's chapter 13 of the book of Revelation. And let me remind you, this false church is going to be destroyed. Chapter 17 of Revelation, verse 16, when political leaders, and they will do the will of God, he will put it in their heart to do his will. They will destroy this false church. By the way, those political leaders doing the will of God, chapter 17 and verse 17. That false church has to be in operation during that first three and a half years of the tribulation period. When the Antichrist comes to charge of that false church, he will then destroy it. And that all happens after the rapture of the church. And by the way, the rapture of the church can happen at any moment. Everything we've said on this broadcast indicates that. That being the case, what else do I have to say except let's keep looking up until... Join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. Thank you.